This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The Fisheries Management Division is that conservation arm of Major League Fishing. It's a partnership between them and, and Gary, myself, and the Black Bass Stewardship Group. Be at an event, let's say we were at Lake Fork, we might have 3,000 fish catches over that one event. And so I told Gary, like, this data is gold. You know, it's really, it's really good krill data because it's true. It's double verified krill data, but it also, it showcases uh, an advanced size class of fish that maybe doesn't show up in electro fishing as easily. And so one of the first things we did was just provide that data to the state agency. So whatever state was relevant to it, Canyon built Google Drive folders. She actually is the one that has to do all the labor of taking the data off of basically the iPad, the website, and putting it into Excel spreadsheets and providing that to the state. Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Impact Outdoors podcast. And we're coming to you with another episode recorded live at the 2023 Hunt Fish Podcast Summit up at the Warren Ranch here in Texas. And on this week's episode, we've got my great friend Stephen Barden and Canyon Klein from Texas Pro Lake Management on the show. And, uh, you know, I've known Stephen and Canyon for, for quite a while now. And and they're really doing some some great things in the fisheries management world for private lake and pond management, not just here in Texas, but across the country. But Stephen has also been um, spearheading some great conservation measures and, and helping develop um, some things with Gary Klein um, at Major League Fishing. They've started up the Black Bass Stewardship Group and in, and in turn have also got the Major League Fishing Fisheries Management Division going, which is doing some incredible research and some great conservation work at a lot of the tournament stops across the country and so on this episode we get to sit down and chat a little bit about all the stuff they've got going on here in texas and across the country uh, working with major league fishing and kind of hearing some of the insights about some of the hot topics in the fishing industry going on right now so this is a great episode don't want to miss this one and uh, let's go ahead and jump right in right after a word from our sponsors 
This episode was recorded live at the 2023 Hunt Fish Podcast Summit. Podcasters and guests from across the country come together to talk about their passions for hunting, fishing, and conservation. This year's summit is brought to you by Waypoint TV, Ron Hoover Marine of Galveston, Spot Stalker Guide Service, the Wild Sheep Foundation, Galveston Fishing Company, Captain Experiences, and Badger Claw Outfitters. to do this for like since i started because like three years ago so it took that long for us to get because we're both all over the place so much um and uh it's been really cool to to see all the things you've been doing since we met i don't even remember what year we met each other it's been a while it's probably been let's see we've had uh derek this is the 10 year anniversary of us meeting well Perfect segue into this Perfect podcast. segue, yes. <laughs> and then, so I met Canyon, we've got Canyon Klein here with us, and, and you came, it's so like your dad came to Brigade, I think in... Well, it's called 15, maybe? Yeah. 14, and then yeah. Did you come the next year, or was it... I came here as a cadet, yeah. yes. I remember, and uh, I enjoy this ranch so much, and Brigades has like brought so many cool people together, and all the different relationships we've had. Um, come out of that it's been really really special um and now you guys are working together like you're 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 text product management thing and then now you're working steven like tell us what's what's going on like how how's the business doing well so first i'm steven barden uh you did an excellent introduction Derek. yeah <laughs> it's weird because i know you so much works, yeah. Right, man? yeah so i own texas product management i started that company in 2011, while I was in grad school, to help absentee owners manage their private lakes here in Texas. Um, through my company, I met Canyon's dad, Gary, and mm-hmm. invited him to, to Texas Brigades, to the past brigade camp. And that was really kind of the start of our relationship. Um, Gary and I now own a company together called Black Bass Stewardship Group. We can talk about it. It does uh, conservation-related activities mm-hmm. around events and brands and uh, really allows me to branch out beyond private lakes. Yeah, Canyon, uh, you know, I met her immediately after meeting her dad. And at the time, she was in high school, and yes. she wanted to be a veterinarian. So long ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, she wanted to be a veterinarian, and she she actually spent a lot of time with my wife while she was in high school. Yeah, I actually shadowed his wife a few times, and went to the clinic with her and it was nice it was a good time (laughs) pulled calves and all those things yeah yeah i went on a couple calls with her and and decided that she likes fish a lot more than (laughs) (laughs) a lot more a lot more than being a vet well imagine at the barden household there's all the smells of the outdoors there every day from working with the animals and and the fish and because i know um when i used to come home sharks would be like just go to the garage absolutely (laughs) yeah that (laughs) <laughs> That's how you know whenever you come home and, and your wife, she gets home from the vet clinic and you look at each other and you're like, who is who had the worst day? Yeah. <laughs> you know, who gets the first round of the shower? <laughs> uh, so Canyon, Canyon's in high school. She's, she uh, is thinking she's going to be a veterinarian. It, her dad would bring her to the house and Casey and her would go out to the vet clinic and, <laughs> and he and I would go fish all day. And yes. so we, we really got to be close. Um, and then Keenan decided to go to Tarleton State. That's the same university I went to and was in the wildlife department. 
Mm-hmm. And it, it it was a slow process, Derek. We we slowly got her to switch over to the dark side, to the fishery side. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, you just wanted to make tons of money, didn't you? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, who doesn't, right? Yeah, the fishery field's where it's at, for sure. So... <laughs> So I feel like I'm telling Canyon's story, but that's that's okay. So you can keep uh, going. She she finally does an internship with us. Uh, you know why she's at Charlton. We we're so lucky to have Charlton close uh, and and to graduate from the Wildlife and Fisheries Department. You have to have a 220 hour internship uh, your, between your junior and senior year. So I I run through quite a few interns every summer. Mm-hmm. And Canyon uh, applied and, and jumped on the team, and you know we had really enjoyed her. Um, she graduates, decides to do fisheries, graduates, and goes to Parks and Wildlife. Uh, she does a position. W- what what was the title of the position? It was a wildlife and fisheries technician position at the hatchery. And that was at, uh, over in the Athens facility, wasn't it? Yes, yes, Athens, Texas. Yeah. Incredible yeah. place. If you ever come to Texas, you have to go to TFFC in Athens. It's, yes, it's, absolutely. It's a great facility. Yeah, it's for it's for like visitors coming absolutely. in to learn about yeah. how hatchery works. Mm-hmm. Like that's like the epicenter for freshwater stuff, and uh, they do a great job. And it was cool seeing you over there in Parks Yay. Wildlife uniform and doing all that stuff, taking and the shirt with all those cool people. Out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 bunch yeah, so. of cool things. But then this is where she decided she really wanted to make money, right? So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this was a changing point right here. <laughs> so she calls, she calls, and uh, she actually decided to go to grad school. So she got an MBA at Tarleton State, and while she was there, you know, I had a position open up and really needed somebody to, with with the growth of my business and uh, Black Bass Stewardship Group, needed somebody to come on the team that could handle the day-to-day work for our management clients. Mm-hmm. And so that's what Candy does now for us. She travels the state. She works uh, basically executing management plans for absentee owners on a monthly basis. So she really mm-hmm. gets to know the clients, uh, know their families, what they want out of the fishery, and then she executes, uh, which is a lot of water quality work, uh, yes. a lot of habitat work, and a lot of fishing. She 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 does all the harvest. Uh, so, of course, we use electrofishing to harvest a lot, but she does a lot with rod and reel. So that takes her back to, thank goodness, her dad was Gary Klein and... <laughs> she has unlimited <laughs> knowledge there. A Have spoiled. a little background. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I remember when your dad first came here, mm-hmm. and we had lunch out here, and I, we, me, you, and Gary, and somebody else was sitting out here, and I was just thinking to myself, like, this is just kind of surreal, you know? Because yeah. it's weird. Because you know, I watched your dad for so long growing up, you know, and 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 just an icon in the bass fishing world, and uh, um, I remember, I was like. I wonder what he's going to think about the brigades thing. And he was only supposed to be here for like like in a couple hours, I right. think. And he didn't leave till like almost midnight right. that night. And I think I told Steve, I was like, yeah, I think you hooked him. Like, uh, I'm pretty sure he'll be back next year. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yes. and he came back next year for the entire yeah. time, you know, five days. And brought his boat, and, and he's continued to come. He's 10 years. This will be his 10th mm-hmm. camp. Yeah, yeah, 10 years. That's Pretty cool. Well, brigades does that to you. I, I can remember being an adult leader and leaving camp and calling my wife and being like, you know, it was just, it was a hard week, and I don't know that I'll ever go back. And then about three <laughs> days later, you're like, I've got to do that again. Yeah. yeah. I say that every summer. <laughs> <laughs> 
And now we've both ran camps for Absolutely. brigades. And, yep. and, uh, and Camp coordinator, and yep. I, I served on the Tex Brigade's board. I was the first person to get time, you know, term limited out of the Tex Brigade's board. Yep. I, I had to uh, kind of give up my position on the board this year, which is is a good and a bad thing. Your your wife is yep. still stuck in that she's, board. Um, she's enjoying she's, it. She's, you know, she, I mean, we love brigades, and I think her um, tenure is over in December this year, I believe. Right. Um, but uh. It's been cool. Brigades has went through a huge, like, kind of change. Like, they've grown so much, you know, since we've gotten involved with the with the group and and stuff. And y'all kind of started that change, though. You know, you had you had the Bob White and the, and the Buckskin and the Bass Brigade, and then when you guys came on the scene with Coastal Brigade and, and did the split, um, that kind of changed everybody's mentality. That's when Ranch Brigade happened, and now there's yeah. two Ranch Brigades and. They're talking about a waterfowl that's out of state, and I think that mm-hmm. Coastal kind of built that culture of we can keep growing. Yeah, and, I mean, I think the the biggest problem is, like, you don't want to grow too fast because right. it's a volunteer-driven organization. Um, but we've done it in a way that we can handle that and, and, and run all the camps successfully and stuff and um, and excited to see what this year brings. So It's always exciting. and. You know, it's right during application season, and we're going to do all the hard grading and selecting kids, and yep, that's when it gets fun, and then it's off to the races for another summer. Uh, I know. It'll be here and done before you it's know the, it. It's the – I forgot what Dr. Rollins, he was here last year, and uh, we were talking about brigades a bunch, you know, since he started it, and um, it's like it's the hardest week you'll ever love, you know, in your whole life, right. and, and yes. he's not lying. Like, it's literally like – 24 hours a day basically for five days and not including all the work up to it yeah um, but it's but cool at the end of the camp though it's so rewarding it is so rewarding after yep. those five days yeah and canyon is now our treasurer secretary for bass brigade so she's following yes. right in the footsteps and yeah and camp camp this year is going to be my ninth year wow for ah, bass brigade i feel old Yes. Well, wait. <laughs> Let her work for you, and she'll remind you of, of how old you are every single every day. Every single day. Every single day. She asked me whenever we were driving here. She said, when you first started your career, how many of these podcasts and stuff did you do? And I said, oh, podcasts weren't a thing when I started my yeah, career. They <laughs> weren't. Like, you just aged yourself. Yeah. It's like when I was a kid, there was no internet until like college, basically. You can remember. <laughs> can't you remember like your parents' first computer that showed up at the house and like oh, the we first had a time. typewriter. I had to do my book reports yes. on a freaking typewriter, and I hated that thing. Yeah, because I was not very good at typing back then, and I was always screwing up and having to get the white out and like. She doesn't know what whiteout is. Yeah, it's, it's liquid. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> Funny, yes, like I do. Cover yeah. it up and then push it back, and then if you screw it up really bad, you got to start all over again. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> wow. The struggles are frustrating. Real. Now it's like kids are just doing it on their phones and like texting it to their teachers or whatever. Oh, yeah. exactly. Technology is crazy these days. Yep. Yep. How has technology changed the f- the fisheries world? That's a great question. Um, you know we. We use it a lot, right? Uh, especially whenever you really think about the stuff that's on a boat. Uh, you think about, like, the Lowrance unit and the things that it can do uh, with with both down imaging and side imaging and now forward-facing sonar. Our electrofishing boat has forward-facing sonar so I can watch fish move and see the effect that the electricity has on those fish. Mm-hmm. But I can also record everything on the SD card. And then we use a, a system called BioBase that will take those those depth recordings and give me things like 
how much vegetation is in the lake, what the bio volume of the lake is in aquatic <laughs> vegetation. It'll do hardness of the bottom. You know, we can make bathymetric maps within hours of any property we manage. And then you can overlay that into now Google Earth. And so I can, I can literally send you a link and you could have your property pulled up, boundary everything, looking at Google Earth. And now you have the depth profile of your pond. You yeah. can also have the vegetation growth. And if we do it month in and month out, we can watch it progress and where it's growing and receding every year. It's it's unbelievable, Derek. It, it's it's crazy what they're coming out with these days. And I remember um, first time I heard of like side scan. Right. Like my buddy uses it heavily up on Lake Tawakney and to locate fish, you right. know, charter fishing. And, and um, I was just like, that's unbelievable. Like the picture, and I've, I've run it on my boat. I've had it on all three of my boats. I run on my, uh, I've had on my charter business, and I use it a lot. I'm sure, yeah. Um, I haven't put forward-facing sonar on my boat yet, but um, probably will eventually one day. But nobody's using it in saltwater applications yet, which is kind of surprising. Right. Um, but uh, I've got to fish with it, and I mean, everyone's like, it's it's like playing a video game. It's like, yeah, but it's still hard. Like you have to still hook the fish. And, and stuff and uh, but it's very addictive well, and I can see why people like it so much you know what you have to realize whenever you're looking at the depth finder you're using forward facing sonar specifically is there's a delay so what you see on the screen already happened yeah uh, because by the time that that gets back to your screen it it's it's the past so you're really yeah. even though it's milliseconds you're looking into the past is what is in front of you but, you know, you can do, like with the Lorance unit, you can do scout mode, which is a flat plane. You can do forward facing, which is directional in front of you. Or you can do down. And, and so you can do forward and down. And I could I could see some of the offshore stuff, forward and down. You know, you pull up to a rig mm-hmm. and you look down and you can, you can literally see the fish mm-hmm. um, and know what depth to click to and all those things. That, that would just speed up the guide service, I would imagine. Yeah. Does, like, interpreting this data, Canyon, is, like, that come easy to you, like, using this stuff? Because, I mean, it still took me a while to, like, grasp how to, like, change the stuff to the way I needed to see it. Yeah, in my undergrad, I did a little bit of GIS, but I'm I'm still learning. It's a process in learning all this stuff. But yeah. it's a little bit different. But I, in technology-wise, my clients, you know, I rely on technology every single day with my clients. That's mm-hmm. pretty much how I stay in touch with them. So I go to my clients every single day. I get there. I do fish feeders, any kind of maintenance that they need, yeah. uh, habitat, vegetation. And then I'm there recording all that stuff. And then after the visit, I go into our Google Drive, and we have a folder. And that folder is shared with that client. So at any time, they can go in and they can see the progress of the lake, the mm-hmm. data that I've recorded. And so that's been that's been a key factor in it's it's huge for our business. Yeah. Like, well, I imagine. Derek, yeah. I mean, you know, I, you're asking about technology. Like when I started, I would literally walk out to your property and then we would guess. We'd be like, how many football fields is this? Okay, let's call it four acres, you know, based on that. And then I would I would like write the report and say, these are the things I'm going to do. And I would call you on the phone and be like, hey, Derek, I'm coming to your property next week. Then I would send you an invoice, and that's the communication you would get unless you called me or I called you to mm-hmm. ask a specific question. Now, what Canyon does with the Google Drive, I mean, they know what time she's on the property, immediately know all the water quality data. It's, yeah. it's at mm-hmm. their fingertips all the time. So 
you know, for us, it's, it's really great for the client. They've got a lot more communication for us older guys. It's like, man, I, I we're just giving so much all the time. It's, it's hard to keep up, but for, yeah. for her, it's, it's easy. Mm-hmm. It's been, it's been awesome. And then, you know, I also upload pictures and videos yeah. that the clients can see too. So, Oh, it's so nice. Cause I don't have to visit the property as often. So then every month, whenever I'm writing invoices, I can, I can be on the property. I can look at all the pictures, all the videos yeah. and say, Oh my gosh, these are the things in Canyon's notes. And now I can see them. And it's, yeah, I mean, technology is unbelievable. It's crazy. So what, like growing up for you, Stephen, like what, caused you to go down this path of like of where you're at now yeah i i grew up in northeast dallas in wiley and positioned right between lake levon and lake ray hubbard and i um my dad was a you know semi-pro fisherman we ran a tournament every weekend and i didn't really love it you know what i mean i didn't i didn't love the travel i didn't love the weigh-ins um the thing that i liked was walking the shoreline fishing the mm-hmm. you know the the actual competing part um outside of the tournament and whenever i was kind of old enough my parents would you know let me tr- get on the bike and travel we had a local stream i would fish and then eventually i would sneak into ponds and some of those things would happen and uh, eventually though there's this one pond and and i knocked on the lady's door and asked if i could fish and it was a math teacher i had my sixth grade math teacher was was who owned the pond and you know long story short she um she would let me fish the pond but i would have to do work while i'm there you know help her husband with fish feeder cut cattails spray cattails burn like those kind of things yeah and over time derek i would i would i would literally fish it once a week so over time uh, i would see things like you know whenever we we burn the cattails off the shoreline the water color would change over the next few weeks. And I would notice things like that. And it became really intriguing to me that somebody who owns a pond can make small changes and it would have big impacts on the fishery. And just the idea that we could control an environment uh, was pretty cool to me. And it came natural. Like Mm -hmm. I would would see things that are happening and I understood them right away. So whenever it came, you know, time for high school and – you start really thinking about your electives. I took an elective in aquatic biology. I really enjoyed that class. It was very easy for me. Um, time for, for school. And I just was telling everybody, I'm going to be a lake manager. In my brain, I thought that meant like Tex Parks and Wildlife would hire me. They would assign me Lake Levon. That would be my whole job. I would just <laughs> live on Lake Levon and catch crappie. And, but, you know, you, you I, I knew in my heart that somebody was managing fisheries. And as I progressed through school and I, I got really lucky to, to work for a guy named Harold Arms at a, a small fish hatchery and he did pond stocking. And I learned about the pond management industry. And that's really, I take the things that, that I learned from Ms. Clayton, my math teacher, and just how we can create control on these small environments and how I understood that naturally and kind of parlayed that into a business that mm-hmm. in West Texas, we have a lot of absentee owners. We have a lot of people that, you know, they may not see their property for three to six months. And in a pond, if you miss it for three months, you've missed a lot. Yeah. And so it, it really, um, just all those little components, uh, luckily came together at the right time there was nobody else out here doing this uh, i married uh, casey and, and she was a veterinarian and she got her she got her degree in in veterinary medicine and she got a job in comanche county so it all came together at the right time but i 
I push it back to when I was 13 years old, that math teacher who just said, you can fish, but you have to help. And that work ethic and, and the things that it taught me, that's that's really where that spark started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's similar for me, too. I mean, not I, you know, when I was in college, I was I wanted to be a game warden. Right. That was the main goal. And going to college, that's what I was going to do. And um, I started volunteering with a, a co-op unit at, at OSU and really seen, like, the research side i mean i was taking all the same classes that everybody else was all in the same degree but um i really enjoyed that aspect of it and that kind of took me down a different path and and uh, yeah here we are today so um you know i've I really really enjoyed that side and, and and um had a lot of friends that went into the game warden route and right. law enforcement stuff but um i've really enjoyed working in the fisheries field from a biological standpoint and seeing never thought I'd end up in Texas working on the coast. When they tried to hire me down here, I was like, like you guys know, I've never really spent any time, (laughs) never been there. Um, freshwater, not saltwater, but, um, a lot of the stuff carries over, you know, and I I realized that really quickly. So, um, and 20 years later, still there. Still there. (laughs) You're getting close to that retirement age. That, that can Um, happen any minute. Yeah. It'll be nice when it does. I know that. So, more That's uh, so cool. Congratulations, by the way. 20 years at doing anything is very impressive. Yeah, it's awesome. flown by, too. Yeah, I mean, that. I remember when me and Sharks moved down here, I was no kids, and they weren't even in the picture yet, and, and uh, now we've got our family. We're rooted down there on the coast, and it's been pretty cool. So yeah. getting to train our little mini-me's in the, the God, love of the outdoors. <laughs> with a mom like Sharks, I bet they're brilliant. Oh, yeah, we've already talked about that. They're yeah. super freaking smart, so they don't get it from me. So. <laughs> well, that's, well, that's true. <laughs> You're just but a fish. I, I just take them outside, so. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's cool. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about, you know, with, with, with the business y'all are running, um, I know you get a lot of people call and ask, like, hey, you know, I've got this pond. I want to catch big fish. Can you just put some fish in? Like, what What are, right. I mean, what's your what's your um, process, I guess, when dealing with, with new clients on stuff like this? That's a great question. Uh, so it always starts with the goal. Like you just said, like, I want to grow big fish. Like, we want to refine that a little bit. Uh, so we want to say, okay, like, largemouth, 99% of people, that's what yep. they're talking about. Okay, what is big to you? You know, because let's let's take Gary Klein, Canyon's dad. Like, what's big to Gary Klein? is very different than what is big to, you know, somebody who, who doesn't grow up with that background. Mm-hmm. So is big five pounds, seven pounds, like let's define a number. Uh, once we kind of define that number, then we got to take a look at what you actually have. Uh, so for us, that usually involves electrofishing, or if we can't get the electrofishing boat into the, to the lake, then we would have to do some sort of angling, trapping, seining, you know, combined yeah. sampling methods. Uh, but we want to quantify what do we have forage base, what do we have for a starting, um, you know, base of the largemouth bass? And within that, we're going to collect a lot of data. We're going to collect links, weights, species. Uh, we may pull some otoliths and, and do some age regression, things like that, to really identify what the population looks like on that day. Um, then we'll look at other resources that you have. You know, do we have gaps in the food chain uh, that we can kind of improve the lake by mm-hmm. exploiting? Are you currently feeding the fish? Like, we'll just put together a whole plan to where we can maximize the environment. Um, a lot of that has to do with habitat as well. Most 
reservoirs are very habitat limited. Um, number one, it's pretty costly to put habitat in initially. Number two, as they age, they, they just accumulate silt um, in, in trees and, and things that may have been left will decompose. Mm -hmm. So by the time we get a hold of a reservoir, <coughs> it's, usually, it's usually habitat limited. It has some sort of fish population that may or may not be stunted. And so a lot of our work in the beginning is to find what we have and then can we change that or should we start over? Um, if we can change it, then we, then we craft a management plan that usually involves a component of harvest, a component of forage, uh, increasing abundance or, or density or both, uh, a component of habitat, and then a component of water quality. Mm -hmm. And that's really where Canyon then comes in. We have the plan. Uh, we usually try to write like on a one-year immediate, these are the things we want to do. And then try to project that out over five years. And so then Canyon would, would be the one that executes. You know, she would have the list of activities she has to do every month. Um, she would go out to the property. And like it it sounds silly, but, you know, probably the most important thing she does is, is just fish for three to four hours on the property. Darn. Darn. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, but you learn so much from it. You know, the yes. time on the water, the things you're observing and you're actually getting that harvest done. And most ponds are, are under-harvested, so mm -hmm. having somebody dedicated to that job becomes very important. So what all data are you taking from the fish that you collecting on, the, on the, the, the hook and line sampling? So with each fish I catch, I take a weight and a length, mm -hmm. and then I check it to see if there's any parasites on it, if it's looking healthy, and then it's cold. The, and then you, you hear that and then it's cold it's not and then it's released uh, there's she, she makes it so simple um it, the majority of fish that you catch unfortunately have to be cold in a lot of these mm -hmm. environments um you know just a maintenance uh harvest every year is like 25 pounds per acre per year so whenever you know you've got a 40 50 acre lake she's right like almost every fish is cold there'll be a there'll be a slot limit that we use mm -hmm. a harvest slot but uh, majority of them are cold, and the cool part for me is she takes a picture of every one of them. And mm -hmm. so then there's uh, there's little things that she doesn't collect that I can then go back and look at. And I can also um, work with the client to make them a little better of an angler because she writes down what lure type she was using as a spinnerbait or soft plastic or whatever. And uh, so then we can work with the client and make sure that they're equipped with the right tackle and gear so that maybe they can have that same experience because she'll yeah. go out. I mean, some of these days she's catching 40 or 50 fish in a three-hour three hour trip. It's unbelievable. Yeah. But then that just goes back to the Google Drive that with each fish I catch, that client can go back and see what I caught that fish on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you texting your dad, like, eh, look, what I'm, look what I'm catching today. You have no idea. <laughs> I send him so many pictures. That's good. He Guess deserves it. Guess where I am. <laughs> he deserves it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's funny. That's really cool. Um you know, so this is this is all, you know, progressed into like what you and Gary started with the Black Bass Stewardship Group. So talk about that and kind of y'all's relationship with the fisheries management in with Major League Fishing. Absolutely. And, I mean, this is this has been really cool to watch the last few years how yeah. this has blown up. So about the time we met Gary Klein, uh, they had just launched Major League Fishing. So the first year Major League Fishing was 2011. We met him probably let's say 2013, mm -hmm. uh, maybe 14. And at the time, that was a made-for-TV show where the traditional five-fish angler was actually competing 
in a format where every fish counts a cumulative weight for their entire day. And it was made for TV. You had zero practice. You would just show up and fish. Um, through time, they decided to make that a whole league, you know, uh, where they would travel and that would be the primary uh, format that they competed under. So in 2019, 80 anglers joined what, what became called the Bass Pro Tour. The Bass Pro Tour, those those anglers would compete under that catchway immediate release format with an onboard official and it would be cumulative weight. Well, at that time, um, Gary and I had identified that as a league, you know, there's some responsibility that comes from that. You're on a national circuit with, um, you know, these these well-known anglers competing and you have a responsibility. And, and that responsibility kind of stemmed from the format. The format naturally reduces things like, you know, fish movement, stockpiling a fish mm-hmm. or, um, you know, nest loss through... Uh, some sort of predator whenever the fish is, is removed from the nest. It, the catchweight and release format also really eliminates, um, you know, bear trauma or, or the need to fizz fish. Like there was a lot of really great conservation elements, uh, but it, it perpetuated the stereotype that bass need uh, heavy conservation or limited harvest, things like that. So Gary and I knew that there was like these, all these conservation components. And so at at the start of the Bass Pro Tour, we also started Black Bass Stewardship Group with the idea that we would help Major League Fishing as a consultant um, with, with how do we handle this conservation message. Yeah. Um, through a lot of conversations and uh, kind of understanding the industry, that evolved into what's called the Major League Fishing Fisheries Management Division. And the Fisheries Management Division is that conservation arm of Major League Fishing. It's a partnership between them and and Gary and myself and the Black Bass Stewardship Group. Um, the the primary thing we started immediately was every single angler, whenever they caught a fish, they would weigh it on a scale. The official would then sit down and write uh, in the iPad the species of fish they caught and the weight they caught, and they're in the form. Um, you know, unbeknownst to the fans, there was all these other things that they were collecting. They were collecting the depth in five-foot increments that the angler was fishing in. <laughs> they were collecting the type of habitat, uh, whether it was a dock or vegetation or whatever, yeah. uh, a category of where on the lake they were. Were they in bays, pockets, streams, open water? Where were they? Um, also, because of all that it was in an iPad, it had a timestamp and then a GPS location for that fish. And so looking at the data sets on the Bass Pro Tour, Derek, we may be thinking, you know, we may be at an event. Let's say we were at Lake Fork. We might have 3,000 fish catches over that one event. And so I told Gary, like, this data is gold. You know, it's really it's really good krill data because it's true. It's yep. double verified krill data, but it also it showcases um, an advanced size class of fish that maybe doesn't show up in electro fishing as easily. And so one of the first things we did was just provide that data to the state agency. So whatever state was relevant to it, we built, once again, Google Drive. Canyon built Google Drive folders. She actually is the one that has to do all the labor (laughs) of taking the data off of basically the iPad, the website, and putting it into Excel spreadsheets and providing that to the state. So we started with that shared data um, in 2021. We uh, expanded to also be doing some fish habitat work. Um, and we started what we call the, the Major League Fishing Lunker DNA Initiative. And, and that's where we take a mouth swab of any fish uh, that's seven pounds or larger 
and we send that, that collected sample to Auburn University and Dr. Peatman's lab, and he analyzes those fish for percentage of Florida genetic within that largemouth. And so, you know, fast forward three years down the road, um, we've done hundreds of fish. We've started uh, seeing a few trends, not really a lot because you know as well as I do, it's it's very hard to catch fish that are over seven pounds. Yeah. And, and the numbers that you need to understand a population, uh, we don't really do it for a to understand the population within the fishery. So I would never say like our DNA study will tell you what the breakdown of genetics within Lake Fork is. What it would tell you is the breakdown of genetics of fish over seven pounds uh, in, in that reservoir. So we do, we do those and uh, we've had some great partners join the team. Uh, Minn Kota helps us uh, with all of our habitat restoration projects. Berkeley has signed on. They have Berkeley has a lab. A lot of people don't realize yeah. Berkeley has like a, a very scientific lab, and they hire fisheries biologists and aquaculturists and chemists. And so their their lab helps us out with a lot of research. And uh, you know, Derek, it's just it's evolved into a really big deal, especially in our eyes, but a really big deal within the fisheries industry because it's a great example of anglers who are contributing to scientific data and collaborating with state agencies. Plus, then bringing in these private sector companies and, and their marketing budgets and things like that to facilitate fisheries research and improvement. I imagine most, like, I imagine most of the reception by the anglers was pretty positive because, I mean, in the past, I mean, a lot of this probably has never really gone on. I mean, I'm sure there was little projects going on here and there, but something on such a, a high right. profile um, level I mean I'm sure yeah in, in the past research uh, around fishing tournaments has always been around either mortality yeah. or fish movement as in like uh, stockpiling efforts or uh, once they've been released how long does it take them to go back to a certain zone and you know inherently those have some negative connotations to them mm -hmm. because we're researching your impact on the fishery and so with fisheries management division, kind of the stance we take, like those are still very important components of fisheries management. Uh, but with this catchway release format, we kind of solve all of those. Um, so now we can focus on the positive. We can do, we can come as major league fishing to a fishery and inherently make benefits to that fishery, whether it's data collection that helps scientists or whether it's, a, you know, a, some sort of service project where, we're physically building artificial structure, putting it in, donating it to the state agency. We do, uh, in the past, we've worked with Coast to do some trash cleanups. This last week at, at Red Crest uh, in, in Norman, on Lake Norman in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, we did a Boy Scout group came in. They built line recycling tubes. They built 75 recycling tubes. I got certified as a merit badge instructor and <laughs> you're you're giggling here um i can i can i can certify you and get you a merit, merit badge if you need one Derek. but uh i'll keep that in mind <laughs> yeah so i had 24 uh boy scouts that earned a fish and wildlife management merit badge so they went through basically a mini bass brigade camp uh i nice. did a i when they saw the schedule they're like oh my gosh how are you going to accomplish all this and i was like you have no idea we'll have time left over yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah you actually don't have any idea yeah. it can happen <laughs> yeah so we got them their merit badge but part of it they have to do a service project and they built those line recycling tubes and they're just there isn't a lot of this uh extremely positive work going on you know whenever we think about 
angular groups and biologists and and the friction that occurs just naturally because of maybe a lack of communication or uh, some bias that that in, is inherent in social media and things like that where mm-hmm. we just don't see positive and and for our fisheries management division that's all we have is positive uh, yeah. you know we don't have people that come onto our social media or, or comment on things we're doing and they're negative. That, that doesn't happen. Well, I think a lot of it too is like a lot of the, a lot of the good stuff never gets coverage. Right. Like it's, it's hard, you know, cause like it's all the negative stuff that blows up the internet, but y'all have done a good job with the business and, and with what y'all are doing with this partnership with MLF and, and stuff and highlighting some of that stuff. Cause I mean, I see it all, all. I mean, I know I follow you guys, but I see it all over on different pages yep. and stuff. And that's really cool to see. Yeah. We've, uh, I was really lucky whenever I started my company, I, I did the hashtag real biology mm-hmm. and got that, um, to where it had, had a quite a good following and we have apparel and things like that, that have that. that I know. I got an email saying my shirt was printed there for the Bass go. Brigade fundraiser and hopefully it'll be at the house next it'll week. It'll be there when you get there. Nice. Yeah. So we, um, we've built a brand around it, you know, a, a really educated angler, a good steward. We built a brand around that and we have some great fans that, that really promote our things. Um, and then the media, the fishing media has gotten behind it. You know, people like Jay Kumar, Ken Duke, um, those people were hungry for content that's positive and, mm-hmm. and that shows what anglers can do. So whenever we provide that, they do put it on their social media and, and they get it out to a larger audience. And <coughs> I've been very lucky to, uh, to know Walker Smith at Wired to Fish. And we were contracted to do a lot of articles for them. But, but in turn, we built this great relationship to where when we have cool things that happen that, that should get media attention, Wired to Fish is willing to you know, share and post those things as well. So it takes everybody and it's, I tell Gary all the time, you know, he, he gets a little frustrated because he wants the ball to move quicker. Yeah. In the same way. And I tell him all the time, (laughs) I'm impatient. This is a progress, but this is a culture. This is a culture change that we had to have first within our league and then outside of our league and and into the fishing community. And, um, you know, that's not going to be one overnight. There's, there's a lot of things and, uh, I relate it back to, you know, I'm a biologist, just like you're a biologist. And one of the things as a biologist, you want to put your nose down. You want to do good work, collect data, make make positive changes. And that's what you care about. And inherently, you're, you're a little apprehensive about bragging on yourself and bragging about your work. And as, as an entirety, the fisheries industry has been that, you know, the fisheries management industry. We've, we just don't like bragging on ourselves. And so it's allowed this gap to grow between biologists and anglers over time. And mm-hmm. at the fisheries management division, we really try to, to bring that gap back together and bridge. And I try to brag on other biologists and what they're doing. One of the, the series is, uh, that we do on the Major League Fishing website is called Meet Your Biologist, where I interview local f- biologists for, you know, we did Lake Norman, we've done Grand Lake. You know, the biologists that are actually doing that work uh, we try to interview them and show the world that they're fishermen too. Um, they love the fishery they're on. They've got diverse backgrounds. They're di- they're diverse people, uh, but they're fishermen just like the rest of us. Yeah. Yep. What um, I gotta ask the question about um, you know when we're talking about forward facing sonar and stuff. This all these giant fish that are getting caught now. It's like that's pretty cool to see. Do you think that we're now seeing that 
so many of these lakes, these fish are coming out all over the place now. Some more than, than others, but just probably because due to pressure. But I think that's only going to help us kind of solve the puzzle of the bass and like seeing how these things can hold larger fish more than we realized, I guess, before. Right. I mean. Yeah, I, I had a in-depth conversation at Red Crest with several biologists, several media um about kind of that subject of what do we do with forward-facing sonar allowing us to exploit fish that were typically hidden like those fish existed yeah um they were the exceptional individuals and exceptional individuals within the fishery were smart um they had very unique home ranges maybe they were in an area of the fishery that wasn't easy to to exploit them to find them and capture them and those kind of things so uh, forward-facing sonar has allowed people to see these fish. And as technology improves, it's only going to become more efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's going to, like with the Share Longer program, it's going to allow us to collect more information and data on those fish. I mean, if if you had to say, is there a 20-pound fish in Texas right now, I, I would I would lean towards yes um, in without forward facing sonar we may never see that fish it would be mm-hmm. it would be such a minute chance that that fish existed on that day in a catchable zone of a lake where an angler actually was because there may only be that one in that fishery and the forward facing sonar just maybe provides us a little bit better of a chance of seeing that fish once once that fish is captured then it then it comes down to anglers now have gopros on their boats they're videoing everything they're doing. Uh, we have the share Lunker program to where if it's in season, that fish can be donated. We can then get offspring off of it. If it's not in season, they could do uh, remove a scale and let us do the genetic component of that fish. Mm-hmm. And Tex Parks and Wildlife has done a beautiful job retrofitting their genetic lab to not just look at Florida versus native genetic. Now we're starting to look at maternal genetics and really trace a lineage of these fish. And as that progresses over the next decade, uh, it's going to be pretty unbelievable because then we could take the lineage of a fish and start identifying components of that genetic sequence that maybe unlock growth. Uh, maybe they unlock something like disease resistance, longevity, like like you know lifespan, cold tolerance or, or heat tolerance. And if we could find those things within the, in the genome, and start to select those in in the breeding process, what we would end up with is a bass that is more functionally developed for Texas bodies of water. Right. And we can maybe even get some stuff on the coast that you guys could <laughs> could see some big fish growing. That'd be nice. What I would guess the average lifespan, uh, you know, of fish in y'all's area is like four years for a largemouth <laughs> inland just because of you don't really have winter, you know, and you have some pretty warm summers. I know that uh, we're doing a project with MLF right now, um, and it is uh, in Louisiana, in, in the, like a Chafalaya Basin area. And uh, whenever I was talking to Lisa, who, Lisa Butler, uh, who, who runs their hatchery stuff, she was telling me that those fish in that area live about three years, largemouth average lifespan is three years. Wow. So mm-hmm. we're doing some fish stocking, and she's like, you do understand that, that these fish are stocking, they're they're not going to reach like even you know necessarily a catchable like harvestable size like they're just not going to do it it's too warm here <laughs> so if we can if we can use some of the genetic component that we're learning 
to unlock those pieces of code. Um, it would be like many other industries, like the tilapia, the aquaculture industry with tilapia. They figured these things out 10 years ago for tilapia. They can, they can now have a batch of tilapia where every offspring comes out as a male and, you know, it has this quick growth rate. They can get it to a one-pound fish in, in, you know, eight weeks, and then it can go on the table and you can eat it. And yep. they don't have to put a lot of hormones in that fish to make it happen. Um, we could do the same thing with largemouth. We could kick out 90% females, and they could have these, you know, 15, 20-year lifespans and these exceptional growth rates, and there's no telling. Yeah. It's like um – it's like a little bit different application, but like on the coast, like they're doing this um, oyster um, farming, I guess you want to call it, mariculture growing now. And um, they're kind of bypassing the um, the issues we face with live reefs on the bottom of the bays, dealing with sedimentation and um, commercial harvesting, you know, as far as dredging activity and stuff like that. So they're basically hanging structures to grow oysters in just in the water not relying on the reef to be sustainable right and they grow faster they grow in a more desirable shape than the one than the wild native oysters do and and um, um they sped the process up by almost a year right by doing this which turns money quicker exactly. for these businesses and i really hope that the industry moves more that direction as far as oysters are concerned it's such a big hot topic down there um but with you know we're dealing with stuff like um these natural events with hurricanes and stuff we keep having every six to eight years down there. It's like, it just keeps destroying everything we right. work to build. And it's like, we need to come up with something better. And it's the same with the bass, I guess. So yeah, it's all technology. And so the oysters, uh, grown in the water column, is that improving water quality? Like, is that a density? Still, still does. I mean, they're still yeah. fill. I mean, these oysters filter like 55 gallons of water a day. Nice. Yeah. Wow. It's incredible. Um, and, and our ecosystem relies on it because we're not so heavily covered up in um, um, seagrasses. Like we have a lot of seagrass in the western Galveston Bay part of the complex. Um, and the water quality over there is way different than the eastern side or the upper side close to the Trinity River um, outflow because it's fresher right? and a lot more sedimentation. But the oysters will clean clean that water up, you know. And our base is susceptible because I'll tell everybody we're in the armpit of – the Gulf of Mexico, so everything predominantly comes from the southeast right up into our neck of the woods. So we have a lot more mud and not as much sand down the south. Um, but, um, you know, if the oysters were gone, it would look like chocolate milk right. all the time. Right. Like you like you never see. Like I had, I was talking with the, when interviewed Tom Rowland one time, and uh, he was like, yeah, we came to Texas, and we're used to, like, seeing what we're fishing for, right? And, uh, like, they launched a tournament like right out of chemo is right by my house where we keep our work boats and he's like we had no clue what we were doing like we were blind as a bat because we never fished in anything right. like this there here in texas and like louisiana um i still figured it out but but um yeah it's totally different yeah so that's when those electronics become so important yeah <laughs> yeah yes. yeah and, and it's like it's no different than what we're using for like game cameras for chasing whitetails and stuff i mean right. you know it's a similar application um and i know there's a lot of controversy about that it, but whatever new stuff comes out there's always going to be absolutely like, that's not fair and and that kind of thing and i don't know you still got to figure out how to use it you still got to catch exactly. the fish and everything else that goes along with it so i don't have a problem with it yeah so. Kenyon's dad uh he and i have talked about a lot 
he's kind of the same same mentality you have, Derek, which is, you know, first you have to get the equipment. Then there's a learning curve on what does it actually mean. Yeah. And then you have to develop the skill to understand and relate distance on a screen to distance in water. And then you have to be accurate enough with your cast to make those two things combined mm-hmm. to where now I've, I've put the lure at a safe distance to where I can engage this fish. And then I have to be able to show that fish the lure in a way where it will respond positively and I can hook it. Yeah. And, you, and you have to do that remembering that what you see on the screen already happened. And you have, you know, you have to inherently understand that. Now, he will tell me that people like Canyon, you know, that are, uh, you know, much younger than us, they understand that easier. The video game kids, they, they under, well, no, seriously, he, <laughs> he tells mean, me all no. the time yeah. that, that they relate distance on a screen to reality better than he can. So for him, it was a learning curve. For somebody like Canyon, it's much easier. And I'll need to bring it down there. Bring the setup down there, and let's go try it on the jetties. Oh, <laughs> I think it would work exceptionally well looking for fish. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, on yeah. the electrofishing boat. Nobody's using it on the coast no. at all. Nobody's using it on electrofishing Saltwater is usually either. like 10 years behind the bass fishing industry, it seems like, so on everything. Yeah, I can remember when y'all got side imaging, and I was like, you just now got it? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, it's been available, but nobody uses it. Right. There's still a lot of people that don't even use um a lot of sonar. I mean, most, a lot of people, you just use regular old typical, flashers. yeah. Well, not flashers, but, uh, <laughs> a little bit you know, old. you're <laughs> just regular sonar transducers and stuff. And, and, um, but, uh, I've tried to adapt a little bit in technology and, um, my favorite thing in the past 10 years that I've added is, is by far the use of these Minkota troll motors with the spot lock features and, I tell everybody, I was like, man, if I had that when I was like 16, 17 years old when I was fishing, it's like, oh, man. I mean, it's a game changer. Right. You know, and. Uh, when and wind becomes not an issue. Yeah. You know, wind is no issue. I'm just going to stay right here and I can accurately cast like that. And, and even like the guys like Gary, they now take advantage of it and they'll position their boat in a way that the wind and their bait work together. Uh, you know, and, and make the fish more susceptible because the wind's pushing bait fish, and, and they, they can now use that because of a spot lock. Yeah. That's so cool. So I got to ask you some questions about growing up, you know, with your dad. Like, what was – I know that had to be tough, I guess, as a kid too because he's, he's gone so much. But, yes, I mean, sir. you do a lot of work with him still. I mean, are you running – you still doing, like, all his social media stuff? Or yes, yeah. So, so what's that been like? So growing up, it's been rewarding, but it also has its cons that come with it. Mm-hmm. Dad was not really there on some birthdays, graduation. He missed high school graduation and college graduation. But at the end of the day, I knew that he is doing what he was supposed to be doing. Yeah. So I just, it comes with it. It's one yeah. of those things that I know he's doing what he loves and. I'm not going to get in the way of that. Yeah, well, it's cool that you've been able to do so much with him. I mean, I see, you know, at events and stuff when y'all are together and stuff, and that's got to that's gotta be really special. Oh, yeah, <laughs> working with Dad on a daily basis is just, it's amazing. <coughs> it's truly a blessing. I, mm-hmm. in the beginning, I never thought that I'd be doing what I'm doing, and it's, I love it. Yeah. Now, whenever you were a kid, mm-hmm. you were on tour with him a little bit. Yeah, we traveled with Dad. 
every single tournament we were we were right with them. <laughs> until it, how old? Um, until I was uh, in third grade. Yeah. So you were we homeschooled were, and just traveling yeah, the road. Yeah, traveling like on the road. Dad would be practicing, and then when it came tournament time, we would blast them off in the morning, and then my mom and sister would go to a museum during the day or go to a park and <laughs> be there when he weighed in in the afternoons. Yeah. And there were, there were other anglers that had their kids doing the same yeah, thing, too. So yeah. who, who all were you raised with? Us, oh, man, so many. Uh, but a few. We were raised with Kevin Van Dan's kids and mm-hmm. uh, Alton Jones Jr. kids and a couple yeah. more. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a good time. We would always try to find something something for the kids to do yeah. during the day. Yeah. It's probably it not a bad group of people to grow up with. So absolutely not. <laughs> you know, this year, um, Canyon asked for some time off uh, in the winter, in January. And she went with her dad to Florida for a week and pre-fished and had your first experience with the lock and all those things. It was amazing. Just being <laughs> in the boat with him is just, it's a whole different experience. Yeah. That's pretty cool. He's pretty intense even when he's pre-fishing or fun oh, fishing. Oh, man. He but, is intense. But like the cool thing is I could ask for those days off because I got a pretty cool boss. Yeah. Oh, so. okay. Well, here it comes. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Buttering you up. Yeah. <laughs> I see more time off in the future now. I so right. <laughs> yeah, I do too. So, well, um, this has been fun finally getting to talk to you guys and stuff and kind of let us know where – People can follow what you guys are doing on all y'all's pages and stuff. Uh, social media, man. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, well, we website. Got, we got at TX Pro Lake. Yes. Uh, that'll get you everything that I'm personally doing. Mm-hmm. We have a standalone Texas Pro Lake Management uh, Facebook page. We have Black Bass Stewardship Group Facebook page. Uh, on Major League Fishing, we'll have... Uh, on their website, we have the Major League Fishing Fisheries Management Division. It's on the main page, big blue logo. Mm-hmm. You can click it, and it'll have articles. And then Canyon, you have uh, Instagram, and what is it? Yeah, you got Canyon's uh, Catch and yeah, Canyon. all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's something that I'm trying to trying to get out there. Yeah, well, we'll make Slowly, sure. But it's a process. Yeah. It's a process, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, for me... Social media has always been this fun way to interact with pond owners and fishermen. Uh, you know, but Canyon's got such a cool story to tell because of her dad. And now she's living it on the water mm-hmm. and kind of making her own adventure. And, you know, she's young and she's a female in this industry. And there's there's a lot of content there. So it's it's fun to watch. Yeah, it's been cool. So we had we had the Gale Force twins here last year from Florida. Yeah, I saw that. Man, I, I was just telling them, it's like, I don't, like, I've only known you guys for just a little bit. It was like, I'm so proud of what you guys are doing. Like, right. and it's like what you're doing is like, you're doing such cool content at such a young age and, and, um, bringing people in, into the sport, you know, it's, it's, it's what it's all about. So it's um, just, it's so easy to do what you love and talk about it. Yeah. So the same thing with Canyon's catch. I kind of like Steven mentioned, I have that kind of unique background in the way I was raised and, mm-hmm on a day-to-day basis so you know i thought that would be pretty cool to kind of tell a story with it yeah that's cool well we'll make sure and put links to everything all the pages and everything in the show notes for the episode and stuff and um you know i know um we've got you guys scheduled to, for some more podcasts this afternoon and no, this is great this uh this summit is is so unique um 
you know, whenever I'm at Redcrest, I might do one or two fishing media podcasts, and that's an opportunity for us. But it's rare to have a dedicated time and space, and you have so many podcasters that, that have similar backgrounds and content yeah. and, and goals. You know, we want everybody here really just wants to bring more people into their respective sport and promote all the all the great things that are happening within it. So thank you for the opportunity, Derek. Absolutely, yes, man. Thank this you. This is um this has been really cool to to kind of start and see where it's it's gone the last three years and who knows where it's gonna go. So Yeah, we I watched it I watched it from afar the first year and then last year just texted you and was like, dude, I wish I was I was in town. I was yeah. on an MLF trip and then, you know, you got with me early this year and we're like these are the dates, and uh, this year's been crazy for so many people. Cause the right. dates have—it's been hard to struggle, uh, juggle all the right. all the schedules and everything this year. But man, we've had a great turnout. So we've got almost thirty people here. Right. So and Major League Fishing's competing on uh, Lakes Douglas and Cherokee starting this week, and so I kind of shuffled my schedule around too. Major, I could be here because it, it's definitely important for us. Uh, yeah. It's such a cool opportunity. So. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. Appreciate y'all's friendships and stuff. And um, and uh, hopefully we'll get to sneak in some little fishing today. And, and we're having crawfish tonight, so I don't know if y'all can stay. But don't, see. don't try to compete against Canyon. It's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, good seeing you guys. Bye. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this week's show. I want to thank Stephen Barden and Canyon Klein for coming to the summit this year. Uh, it was great having some time to spend with them and, and chat about everything they've got going on and uh, and just, you know, really enjoy listening to Stephen talk about uh, the fisheries world. And, and uh, he, he does such a great job and is doing a really good job with the company and, and all the things they've got going on. So thanks to them. We've got some more great episodes coming up from the Hunt Fish Podcast Summit this year. And we'll be getting those out here soon. And we really appreciate you listening. And make sure you hit the subscribe button and and stay tuned for more episodes. Until then, we'll see you out on the water.